Well, I invite you to turn with me over in your Bibles now to Paul's letter to the Philippians. So Alex just read the story again of the church plant in Philippi, and we've been working through the letter uh, together lately. And this morning, we're going to look again at the last paragraph of the first chapter. Philippians chapter 1, last paragraph, begins in verse 27 with these words from Paul. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Above everything else, this is what Paul wanted to hear about his friends in Philippi, that they were living lives worthy of the gospel. Now, if we want more details about what that would look like in a church, we can just keep reading the next couple of lines. Look at verse 27 again. It says, only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That's what it would look like to represent Christ well. Paul mentions three things. So I want to hear that you're standing firm striving side by side and not frightened. Paul wanted to hear, because he was sending Timothy to them, and Timothy was going to come back with a report, and he told them in advance what he wanted to hear. He said, I want to hear of a church that is not frightened by opposition outside, and that is standing together inside the church. That's how to live worthy of the gospel, is to face Opposition together and not run away in fear. It's to be under attack and not turn on each other. It's to face hostility and to stand firm as one in the power of the Spirit. To keep marching forward side by side, shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters who love the same king you love. That's what shows the worth, the power, the beauty of the gospel. That is some of what we talked about last week. Now, this week, what I want to do is I want to focus in on the rest of the paragraph from the middle of verse 28 to verse 30. So I want to go and, and read the whole paragraph, and you'll see the portion we're going to focus on. So starting in verse 27 again, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And here's our text that we're going to focus on today. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that's from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Christ, but also suffer. For his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, <clears throat> and now hear that I still have. Okay, now our, our focus, even among those verses, is going to be on verse 29. But to set the stage for that, I want to look at what's around verse 29. And I want to start at the end of the text. Okay, so verse 30, that's where Paul says to his friends, <clears throat> You are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, he's probably thinking back to when he first was there, and that you 
now here that I still have, because he's still facing a lot of conflict. Okay, I want to note a couple things about that, about that verse, about verse 30. Okay, throughout the whole paragraph, Paul's using the language of war. And that continues in, in this verse, in verse 30, where Paul talks about being engaged in conflict. I don't know how you think about life in the church, life in this world. Okay? But for Paul, I think he thought of the church in the world as a church in conflict. Okay? On the one hand, Paul has in mind a specific conflict going on at the time of the letter. He's thinking most likely of the growing conflict between the Roman Empire and Christ's people, those who confessed Caesar as Lord and those who confessed Christ as Lord. On the other hand, that specific conflict is part of a much broader conflict in the Bible. There is a conflict going on between those who align with Jesus and those who don't. And this is not a minor scuffle. Right? This is an intense struggle. And for those familiar with the story of the Bible, this is not surprising. This broader conflict actually began in the very first pages of the Bible. When God first made his promise in the Garden of Eden to send a rescuer, an offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, who would save us from our sins, God also announced in the same text that there would be intense conflict between those who align with the promised seed and those who align with the serpent, with the snake, with Satan. I'm thinking especially of Genesis 3.15, where God says to the snake, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To cut that story very short, Jesus is the promised offspring who came to crush the serpent's head. And Jesus has done that through his cross. But that does not mean the conflict is over. Instead, there continues to be hostility between those who identify with Christ as Lord and those who reject Christ's rule and want to rule for themselves. And throughout this text, Paul uses the language of war to describe what is going on in Philippi and in Rome, but that specific struggle in the first century was part of a broader conflict, one that is still going on today. Okay, the second thing to know from verse 30 is how Paul talks about how his friends in Philippi are joined together with him in the very same battle that he's facing. Okay, this is something that Paul emphasizes in the first words of verse 30 when he says that they were engaged in the same conflict that he's engaged in. And I want to think about that because it's obvious that the Philippians were not going through the exact same suffering that Paul was going through. For example, they were not imprisoned in Rome. The things that happened to him and Silas in Philippi, in Acts 16, did not happen in the same way to them. But Paul highlights the similarity between their suffering and not the difference. Paul knows they are suffering too, even if it's different. He knows that his, and he knows that his friends are facing the same kind of resistance 
even if it looks different in their lives. And so what does he stress? He stresses their, their unity with each other in the conflict. Okay, I wanted to highlight these things to remind us of a couple things. One is to remind us that the same broader conflict that's throughout the Bible is still going on today between those who align with Jesus and those who don't. We need to always remember that the world is not neutral toward Jesus. It never has been. And yet, we should also be careful not to despair and not to talk about our own day as if it's the worst ever. We are engaged in a conflict that has been going on for thousands of years. And if Jesus does not return very soon, it will still be going on long after we're dead. That is just the way it is in the Bible and in life. But this verse also reminds us that even though the suffering that one Christian faces may look different in the specifics from the suffering another Christian faces, we are all engaged together in the same conflict. Throughout the letter, Paul stresses again and again what he has in common with his dear friends. They share in the same spirit, in the same hope, in the same gospel fruit. But here in this verse, he wants to remind them that they are partners in the same conflict. It may look different in Philippi than in Rome, but they're sharing together in the same battle. So that's, that's verse 30. That's the end of our text for today. But then, then I want to go back to the beginning, to verse 28. I want to look at the middle of verse 28 and think about that. So Paul says there, in the middle of verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. And the question I want to start with is, what is the this referring to in that, in that verse? Okay. What exactly is the clear sign that Paul's talking about? He says that this is a clear sign to them of something. But what is the clear sign in the text? To figure that out, you just go back and look at verse 27 again and and try to read through it and think about that question. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So whether I come and see you or stay absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm, striving side by side, not frightened. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. So what exactly is the sign in the text? It it is the endurance. It is the courage. It is the unity of Christ's people in the face of hostility. That's what the this refers to in verse 28. I mean, remember the situation. The Philippians are suffering. They're experiencing opposition. That's why Paul says he wants to hear these things about them, that you're standing firm and moving forward and not frightened. And then what does he do? He points out what that will signify to the opposition. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Okay, so what does that mean? The endurance courage, 
and unity of Christ's people in the face of hostility is a clear sign of two different things in the text. Did you notice that? Two different things. It's a sign to them of their destruction. Now, what does that mean? This is a sign to them that they are on the wrong side, that they are actually the ones who are in danger. That's, I think, what Paul is saying. But it's not just a sign of that. The endurance of Christ's people in suffering is also a sign of what? Of your salvation. And and he's thinking, I think, of the body as a whole, especially. When Christ's people endure suffering for Jesus together, like when they stick together instead of splitting apart, that is a clear sign of our salvation. That God has really done something in this people because that is not natural. What is natural in the face of hostility is to be fearful of those on the outside and to turn on those on the inside. But when the opposite happens, Paul says that's a sign of your salvation. And then Paul adds like a little one-line thing at the end, and that's from God. I think that's like a quick way of saying, and remember, this is all from God. The endurance, the courage, the unity, and ultimately the salvation, it's all from God. Now, that's what I think verse 28 is saying, but if you stop and think about it, or maybe you've thought about this in the scripture memory times, I think we might start to wonder what exactly this would look like in real life. Like, has this actually happened where the endurance of Christ's people has been a sign to other people of their destruction? Like, what, what exactly would this, would this look like? I mean, after all, I was thinking this week, and I, there have been a lot of people who have opposed Christ's people throughout history, right? And many have seen Christ's people suffer well, and they have not repented at all of what they've done to them, right? I mean, many have seen the endurance of Christ's people and have not turned at all from their hatred. In fact, in some cases, they may have looked at the endurance of Christ's people and just hated them more. Or perhaps they looked at the endurance of Christ's people and they saw it as a sign of stupidity, not of their destruction, (laughs) So I bring this up just to get us thinking about what Paul is saying. Like, what is he envisioning here? And so I want to help us by suggesting two things. One is we should remember that people may or may not grasp or respond to the sign rightly. Now, to say this a different way, even if people don't respond to the sign the right way, that doesn't change whether it's a sign to them. Okay, for example, you may see... Uh, a series of signs on a mountain road that say, danger, slow down. You know, danger, cliff ahead. Danger, you're getting too close. Danger, if you go any further, you'll die. You know? And there's no doubt that you could ignore all those signs if you really 
want to, but that wouldn't change the fact that they're signs or that they were put there for your good, right? And that's how I would look at this, at this too. When Christ's people don't shrink back in fear, but instead stick together and press forward in the midst of opposition, that is a sign from God to their opponents of their impending doom. That doesn't mean they'll always see it or respond to that sign, but it is a sign. On the other hand, there are many stories where God has used the endurance of his people to turn others from their wicked ways and to put their hope in God. For a few examples that, that come to mind, perhaps you could think of the endurance of Daniel or of his friends in the book of Daniel and the impact of their endurance and faithfulness on others, even on kings. Or for an example that's really relevant to this letter, you could think of the influence that Paul and Silas had on the Philippian jailer. He saw their endurance and their courage and their unity. And when the earthquake came, what did he do? He fell down before them and he cried out to them, sirs, what do I need to do to be saved? Those stories, and you can probably think of many others that you've read, uh, stories like in Pilgrim's Progress, I was thinking of uh, the death of Faithful in that story and what that did for Hopeful. Uh, And there's many other stories like this that illustrate what Paul is saying here. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation. This leads us then to the middle of our text, which is really the, the, the line, the verse, that I want to think about the most, okay? Verse 29, take a closer look at it. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Okay, now that verse is first of all, supposed to be an encouragement to all suffering Christians. That's what the point of it is. Like that's what Paul's doing. He's trying to encourage all suffering Christians, that identifying with Christ and getting suffering for that is not a sign of God's opposition or neglect. That is, in fact, a gift from God to you. Okay? That is one of the most striking things that Paul ever says about suffering, and he says a lot about suffering in his letters. So I want to slow down, and I want to think about this. Uh, Think about this pretty deeply, okay? Verse 29 again. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Okay, the first thing to note is that Paul is using the language of gift when he says it's been granted to you. He's talking about this this is a gift from God to you. Paul's talking about gifts God gives to his kids, to his children. And that sounds nice, right? After all, who who doesn't like gifts? I like gifts. You like them. We all like them. But that leads to a second thing. Second, Paul mentions two gifts in the text that have been given to us for Christ's sake. The first is it's been granted to us to believe in Christ. And we like that one. We'd like to keep that one. And the second is it's been granted to us to suffer for Christ. 
And I'm not so sure that we like that one. In fact, we might even wonder, at least in our hearts, if there's an option to keep the first gift and send the second one back to the sender. Now, clearly, the focus of the passage is actually on the second gift. That's what the text is about, primarily. The gift of faith is mentioned mainly so we can better understand suffering. But it's still really important to pay attention to what Paul says here about faith. And he says that saving faith in Christ is a gift from God. In other words, even our trust in Christ is not our own doing. You think about yourself and people you know who don't trust Christ, you should not conclude, I trust Christ because I'm really wise. Because I figured it out. Because it's something better about me than them. I mean, Paul says something similar in a, in a famous text in Ephesians 2 when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I mean, we should remember that even our trust in Christ is ultimately from God. God is the one who opened our eyes to see in Christ what we would not have seen. And I think remembering that should keep us humble toward God and toward other people. Remembering this should keep us grateful to God. And it also should encourage us to pray to God for those we love who don't see what we've seen. Asking God to open the eyes of the blind like he did for us and to grant those we love true faith in Christ. But again, the focus in the text is actually on the second gift. It's been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer for Jesus. Okay, so again, this is intended to encourage suffering Christians, but it raises big questions to us about suffering. And so I want to start with two clarifications, and then we'll dig a little deeper into this. Okay, so, so first, in this text, Paul has suffering for Christ's sake specifically in mind. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no application to make from this text to other kinds of suffering such as sickness, poverty, general bad things that happen and hardships that we face in a fallen world. Okay? I'm not saying this doesn't have application to, to that. It does. But it's just worth pointing out that Paul's focus in this text is on suffering that happens because you're connected to Christ specifically. Okay. Now, the second clarification I want to make, though, is that Paul is not saying that the bad things that some people do to Christ's people are somehow good things, okay? Because once you start thinking, like, this is like a gift from God, you have to be careful that you don't start talking about the bad things that people do to Jesus' people as though they're somehow good or okay. They are bad things. They're not morally good. Paul, for example did many, many bad, terrible things to Christ's people because those people loved Jesus. And what he did was evil and wrong. But what Paul could see now 
is that in some amazing way, God could use even human evil for the ultimate good and blessing and benefit of his beloved children. God was able even to redeem those things. Okay. But at the same time, there's no doubt that what he says here is jarring. God has granted us two gifts, to believe and to suffer. To say that is very bold. <clears throat> I, for one, really struggle to think of suffering for a Christ like this as a gift. I don't know if you do. I struggle with that. This is not something we are naturally inclined to think. On paper, I like the words. I think I do. I want to like them. But when it comes to real life, whether I'd be thinking about suffering in my own life, or what about suffering that my children might face if they identify with Christ, or suffering that brothers and sisters around the world are facing for identifying with Christ. These are hard words. I want to like them, but they are hard. But I, but I do remember, these are not words from a guy who suffered little. These words were written nearly 30 years, after, after, after nearly 30 years of suffering for Christ. Paul wrote these words. It's been granted to us, not just to believe, but to suffer for Jesus. So if nothing else, I want to I grasp Paul's mind on this. I want to see what he saw, and I hope you do too. And that's why I want to take a few minutes to step back and look at what Paul has to say about suffering in the rest of Philippians. And then my plan, at least at this point, next week, is to step back even from Philippians and to think more broadly about suffering in the New Testament, especially from Jesus and Paul. Okay, but Because I, I, I think this is a topic that we need to think more deeply about. At least I know I do. Especially in America, where it can be very easy, even as Christians, to try to avoid suffering at all costs. Okay, so first, I want to I point us back to our New Testament reading, at least in our minds. So we reread we re a lot of the story of the church plant in Philippi. Okay? You remember how it went? Paul and Silas were arrested, stripped, beaten in front of everyone, publicly shamed, publicly humiliated, then thrown into prison, put in the stocks, all of this without a trial. And yet in the middle of the night, they prayed and they sang. This eventually led to the conversion of the Philippian jailer. But I wanted to remind us of what happened the next day. The next day, the magistrates wanted to let them go. <clears throat> At that point, Paul and Silas finally revealed that they were Roman citizens. Now, when we went through that story a few weeks ago, we spent some time thinking about that, especially why did they wait to let the authorities know that they were Roman citizens? After all, it seems like they could have avoided the public humiliation, and yet they didn't. They waited to declare their Roman citizenship. Why did they do that? I mean, there's no way to be sure of everything that went into that, but I think at least two things seem very likely. One is that Paul wanted to set an example for the new church of how to suffer well 
for Jesus. After all, not, of, not all of them would be able to play the citizenship card. But the other thing I mentioned briefly at the time is that we needed to remember that Paul did not think about suffering the way that many people today think about suffering. Paul did not view suffering for Jesus as something to be avoided at all costs. Now, this did not mean that Paul went around trying to get suffering, trying to get people to hate him and hurt him. He did not do that. But he also did not try to avoid it at all costs. Why not? At least part of the answer to that is in our text today. Paul actually believed what he wrote in this text, that it has been granted to us for the sake of Christ, not just to believe in him, but to suffer for Jesus. Paul viewed suffering for Christ as a gift from God to him. And so even though he didn't seek it, he did not run from it. But that's not the only thing that Paul says about suffering in Philippians. We won't spend much time on any of these texts, but I just would point out three texts that you could think about from Philippians outside of this text about what Paul thinks about suffering just in this letter. Okay, so the first one is when we looked at recently from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Remember, this is where Paul tells his friends how God has used his suffering. Okay, so you think about Paul's view of suffering. One thing you learn from Philippians is how Paul saw how God had actually used his suffering for good. Do you remember what he says? He says, I, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me, like the imprisonment, all the suffering, has really served to do what? To advance the gospel. So this become known throughout the whole imperial guard, to everybody else, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And then he doesn't just say that. He says, and most of the brothers here in Rome who've seen me suffer like this have actually gained more confidence to speak the word of Christ without fear themselves. So, I mean, what do you learn about suffering from this part of Paul's perspective, right? He thought God can use suffering to advance the gospel, and God can use one person's suffering to strengthen another person's faith, to give them greater courage. A second text on suffering in Philippians is one of the most well-known in Philippians. It's in chapter 2 where Paul talks about Jesus' humility and suffering. Maybe you remember some of these words. Like, Even though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be clutched onto. Instead, Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What do we learn about suffering from that? Our Lord Jesus was a man who suffered. If Jesus suffered humiliation, we are not above suffering. And when we suffer for Jesus, we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. The last text is just one verse from chapter 3. We sang about this verse today. It's, it's the one that I think helps us make the most sense of Paul's view of suffering and why he thought it was a gift. This is where Paul lays out his greatest ambition, where he lays out his greatest goal in life. Philippians 3, verse 10, he says, It is that I may know him. 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings so that I can become like him even in his death. Paul's greatest ambition was to know Christ. He said right before that verse that he had suffered the loss of of all things that he had held dear because he saw the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And then he says, this is my greatest ambition, is is to know Christ. And what did he learn over the years? Over 30 years of following Jesus, what did he learn through experience? He learned that he got to know Christ better through suffering. Paul knew that suffering for Christ allowed him to know Christ in a way that he could not have known Christ otherwise. And so he says, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, and to share in his sufferings. Paul knew that suffering would allow him to identify with Christ in a special way, He came to see that Christ was with him in a special way when he suffered for Christ. It's one thing to want to experience the power of Christ's resurrection, but it is another to desire to know him in his suffering. But if knowing Christ is the greatest joy and treasure in life, if that's true, and if suffering is part of the path to knowing Christ, then suffering for Christ is not a sign of God's opposition or neglect of you. Suffering for Christ is actually a gift from God to you who wants you to know the greatest joy because suffering leads you to know Jesus. It is a gift we should not try to return to the sender. Now, there's a lot to process from these texts. I hope each of us will take time to reflect a bit on what we're seeing. But I just have a couple of big takeaways, just a couple couple lines, really. The the first is just something we need to remember when we think about suffering for Jesus. And I think that's always to remember, first, the suffering of Jesus. Jesus suffered. He suffered in life and he suffered in death. He went to the cross and he did that for us. He did that because he loved us. There was no cost Jesus was not willing to pay to save us from our sins and to bring us to God. And and now that we are his, we can say with Paul with confidence that no suffering that we experience will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here are two things I think we should ask God for in light of this study. One, at least I need this, but I think probably we need this. We should ask God to change our minds about suffering for Jesus. Now, perhaps you've got Paul's view already. That's great. Perhaps you've not been tainted by our culture's emphasis on comfort ease, avoiding pain and suffering. Perhaps you haven't been tainted by that. But I imagine many of us have read these texts today and have been really challenged or even confronted by what we've heard. 
If that's the case, we should ask God to change our minds about suffering for Jesus. We should also ask God to grant our whole church courage in the face of suffering. Suffering for Christ will look different from one person to another, even from one place to another. But we are all engaged in the same conflict. And all of us need a kind of endurance and courage that only comes from God. And so we should ask God, not just to grant us courage as individuals, but to grant our church courage. And then lastly, here's one thing to ask ourselves in light of this study. I think we should ask ourselves, how important is it to me to know Christ? Is knowing Christ valuable enough to me that I would be willing to share in his sufferings if that's what it took to know him better? That's a good question for us to ponder as we go to prayer. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the gift of faith in Christ and of suffering for Christ. I think that what we've talked about today is not a natural way for us to think. And so I pray that you would reshape our thinking by your word and by your spirit, that we will remember the sufferings of Jesus for us, find comfort in his love, in his death and resurrection. And I pray that we will be eager to identify with Christ in every way, even in being made like him in his death, assured of this, that Jesus is with us in a special way through suffering. And that suffering is often the path to knowing Jesus better. And Lord, that's what we want. We want to see the surpassing value of knowing Christ. I pray you'd give us courage and that kind of heart together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.